Well, let me say good morning as well. My name is, is Tim, and I have the pleasure of, of serving as one of the pastors here. We're so glad to, to have you with us here on Easter, um, Easter morning. And I'm excited to, to be in this text a little bit differently rather than being in a, an actual text on the resurrection. I'm, I'm glad we're here because this is a fascinating um, story. But before we jump in, let me pray and ask for, for God's help. God, I, I confess when I hear Jesus saying that he, he said to a, a paralyzed man, get up and walk. To my ears, it almost sounds like pigs go and, and fly. God, it's just hard to imagine a man whose legs didn't work. He, he got up and walked out of the room, and yet, God, this story is here for a reason. Would you open our eyes to see its truth, its beauty? God, that would fill our own hearts with faith. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I need help. If you know me, it's a well-established fact. It's not a surprise to you. If you don't know me, it wouldn't take long to establish that fact. Even on my best days, it's hard for me to, to actually have control over my, my life. A couple weeks ago, um, I came home from work, a day where I had accomplished far more than I had expected. It was a, a day where I might have even spoken to myself in the third person and, and just said, Tim, what a day. That was great. I pulled into my garage, and, and immediately the moment I get into my garage, in two seconds, that great feeling unravels. At the moment I open my car door, I hear two of my three kids screaming, losing their minds in their house. A few minutes later, I'd walk down into my basement, notice there was a pipe leaking that was ruining a part of my floor. And the best thing was that the moment I walked into to my house, my wife stopped me and said, you have to go outside immediately and see this. And so I go outside, and, and this is what I see. The dead animal in a trash can, right? Like, it's amazing how fast, I, when I think my life's under control, it's actually not. How fa fast my, my life can unravel. The moment I think I'm in control, it's, it's amazing how I find out I'm not. And that day was pretty simple stuff. Stuff that with enough time and energy I can probably fix. But as a pastor, I spend a lot of my time around people that, that are confronting things in their life they can't fix. I think of my, my good friend who is, is dying of cancer and every PET scan reveals worse news. I think of a friend of mine who is, has slowly lost her mental capacity and no doctor has a diagnosis and as many doctor's visits as she has made, there's still no clarity on what's wrong with her. But those days are windows for me, windows that as much as I think I'm in control of my life, I'm not. I need help. At the song... Heavy Dirty Soul from 21 Pilots comes to mind. There's a lyric in there, death inspires me like a dog inspires a rabbit. I love, I love that metaphor. Death, suffering, when our life begins to unravel, spin out of control on us, inspires us to action, to make us look for help, look for a way out, a cure. And the, the question at the heart of that chorus is, can you, can you save my heavy dirty soul? That's what the song is asking. Can you, is there anyone to help? Is there anyone to help? Me. That question, that need for help, is what has brought this paralyzed man to Jesus in Matthew 9. And what Jesus offers him is far more than the man expected. And what Jesus offers him has far-reaching consequences to you and to me if we listen to this story. So let's listen to this story and, and see, one, what, who Jesus is claiming to be, two, what he offers us, and, and three, how you get it. So who Jesus is claiming to be, what he offers us, and how... How you get it? 
That the God, in the, the Bible, there's four Gospels, four stories that unpack Jesus' life for us. And three of the four Gospels have this story in Matthew 9 as a part of, of their narrative. But there's one detail in those two accounts, in the two accounts outside of Matthew, that Matthew doesn't include. He leaves out. The Jesus he was teaching at, a house he was staying at, maybe it was a, a friend of his or maybe he had rented it. And, and the house was so full of people, there were so many people in it, that when the friends brought this paralyzed man to Jesus, they actually couldn't get in through the front door. They, they, so what they did is they, they actually climbed to the top of the roof, they opened up the roof, they tore open the roof, and they lowered G, the, the paralyzed man into Jesus that way. Which is a fascinating detail for Matthew to leave out. Then imagine that, you let Jesus borrow your house. Right? Maybe he's a friend, maybe you're, he's renting it from you, and think, what a great decision. Right? Gee, he's given an interesting sermon. He's brought all kinds of people to your house. Maybe some important people. You maybe had a chance to get a new job, get into some influential circles. Right? This is a great decision when suddenly you're sitting there listening to Jesus give an amazing sermon. When you look up and there's, there's a man looking back down at you from a hole in your roof. Right? He peeks his head down. He, he looks around and then he, he disappears. You wait a few minutes and then you notice the roof right above Jesus' head. It's starting to crumble and things are falling to the ground. And, and another hole opens up, but this time the hole's big enough for an entire man to be lowered through. And so they lower the man through you as you watch your roof be destroyed. And maybe I love this story because as, as a preacher, normally people do whatever they can to get out of a room when someone's preaching. Right? It's a great time for a little refill on the coffee, another donut, bathroom break. And I don't judge, just to be clear, because as a kid, I did whatever I had to do to get out of the room when a sermon started. Right? I might, as a kid, I might have op torn open a roof to get out of the room, not to get in. But that's what these guys do. They, they want to get G to Jesus so badly, they're actually willing to, to tear open a roof to get near him. And it's fascinating because then what Jesus does next should shock us, or at least surprise us, or at least confuse us, right? That they lower this guy down, he's laid in front of Jesus, vulnerable, exposed in front of a crowd of people, and what Jesus says to him is, you're a sinner, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. Which is why the crowd immediately reacts. I mean, some people are angry, some are offended, some are confused. And we shouldn't be surprised they'd have this reaction because what Jesus says here, it's both, it's, it's insensitive and the crowd thinks it's blasphemous. Right? It's insensitive because what's happened here is, is you've, you've had a paralyzed man vulnerably come and, and be laid before Jesus and before a crowd of people. Like clearly he's come to have new legs. And what Jesus says instead is, is, is I forgive you. It seems insensitive to the man and, and his vulnerability before Jesus. But also, it, it seems blasphemous that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd which would have assumed, listen, you can't forgive sins without a sacrifice at the temple. A priest can't even say, I forgive you without a sacrifice. And for Jesus to say that, I forgive you with no sacrifice, it's blasphemous. You can't forgive without a sacrifice. And you have to understand what's going on in this moment. In this moment, Jesus is excluding himself from the category of nice religious teacher. Right? He's excluding himself from the category of a Gandhi, a Gandhi or the Buddha or the Dalai Lama. Because he's saying something here that a nice religious person would not say. That when Jesus says, I forgive you, what he's claiming is he's God. Only God can forgive Sin. Jesus knows that. The crowd knows that, which is why the crowd understands what Jesus is doing here. Jesus understands what he's doing here. The paralyzed man and his friend understand what Jesus is doing here. Do you? 
Because in our culture, I hear a lot of people talk about Jesus like he was a nice, decent, humble human being with good advice on how to live, right? Jesus seems like a nice guy. That's kind of the extent of the sentence we think of when we think of Jesus. Or even there are people who claim to follow Jesus, but Jesus, he's more of an advisor, right? More of good advice. And the bottom line is if you had a choice in your life and Jesus said go this way and you go that way, you're, if it's hard enough, you're probably going to go that way, right? And you, listen, I just disagree with Jesus in, in that, that respect, but when you look at the Gospels, you cannot treat Jesus like that. He doesn't let you. Not when you think about what he actually said and did. For example, when, when Jesus, or anytime an angel appears in the Bible, people, people oftentimes try to worship angels. And the angels would always say, no, don't do that. Right? Stop. I'm an angel. Don't worship me. But there are moments in the Gospels when people worship Jesus. But he doesn't stop them. He takes it. Or one of my favorite moments, there's a moment where Jesus is debating with some religious teachers. And, and Jesus basically says, um, I knew Abraham personally. And the religious teachers are like, Jesus, you're 50 years old. Abraham died like thousands of years ago. And Jesus' response to them in that moment is, yeah, I know. I'm actually older than Abraham. <laughs> so, so, I, listen, this kind of thing is not said by normal people. All right, Like, hey, I, I forgive your sin like I'm God. Or go ahead, worship me. Or I've existed for thousands of years. Jesus has excluded himself from the category of nice religious teacher. He can't be like that. People who, who say things like this, who forgive sin, who, claim, who accept worship, who claim to be thousands of years old, those, those are unique. And Jesus is in his own category here. And it's what, the, the paralyzed man, it's what Jesus wants to see, the paralyzed man, in this moment. It's what he wants him to see. And he wants, it's what he wants you to see. That Jesus is not just claiming he can help you. He's demanding your worship, demanding all of you. And so the question for us this morning is, okay, well, who do you say that Jesus is? Have you taken what he said about himself seriously? That you can't claim he was a nice teacher. He, he accepted worship. You can't just claim him as an advisor to your life. He, you, you really have to have one of two responses to him, which is the two responses you see in this passage to Jesus and throughout his life. One is that you're offended, you're angry, you reject him because he's a fraud and a liar. Or two, you worship him as God. You reconstruct your whole life around him. Everything he would call you to do, you would go and do because he is God. That's who he claims to be. And if you don't have, if you not have one of those two responses, if you're somewhere in between, right, Jesus seems nice or maybe you follow him, but there are things that just are off limits to Jesus. If you've had one of those, if, if you're in that middle area, you've not encountered the real Jesus. The real Jesus claims far too much to live in that middle space. And Jesus claims to be God. So what does it mean? What is he offering us? What is he offering this paralyzed man in this story? And once Jesus, he's offended everybody, he's angered everybody, he asks this question, which I love. It's fascinating. He asks the crowd, okay, well, what's harder to do? To say, I forgive you? Or to say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk? And we know what's easier, right? It's far easier to say, I forgive you, because no one can verify that statement, right? I can say, your, your sins are all forgiven, and no one can verify whether or not it's true. Whereas if I tell you, if you're paralyzed, to get up and walk, and you don't, then you're a fraud. You're exposed. It's far easier for Jesus to say, I forgive you. And Jesus understood this. He knows what he's doing here. He's, he's driving the tension, bringing out some anger so that he can get to verse 6, which is the heart of this passage. Here's what he says. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Now, instantly our defense mechanisms kick in here, right? Like, I, I say, Jesus told a paralyzed man to get up and walk home, and he got up and walked home. And we all, listen, whether you're Christian or not, all of us have this thought of, well, I've never seen that. Right? If, if I was to push many of us in this room, you might say, you know, this, maybe this is a legend or Matthew embellished. Right? That, that when I said a, a paralyzed man got up and walked home, your hearts didn't sing because you're not sure it really happened. But allow me to respond to those defense mechanisms for a second. That three things I would say. If, if you think this didn't really happen, three things. One is, is Matthew wrote this story, wrote it down as a gospel within 40 years of it actually happening. That even non-Christian scholars recognize this. Matthew wrote around 70 AD, within 40 years of Jesus' life. And the reality is you, you can't make up things from 40 years ago, right? 40 years ago from us was 1976. Now, I'm not going to ask which of you were alive in 1976 in this room, but there were a few of us in this room that were alive in 1976. Right? And I'm from Indiana originally. And 1976 is an important year to the state of Indiana. It's when Indiana University went undefeated in basketball. It was 40 years ago. When that happened, I grew up with my dad telling me the story of that. Right? He was there. Right? The, the team came to half court at, at a game this year to be honored and recognized of their achievement. Right? So if you came up to me later today and said, you know, Tim, Kansas went undefeated 40 years ago and won the national championship, I would stop you in your tracks. Right? I've got autographed basketballs and pictures and cranky old Indiana fans that can prove you wrong. Okay? You, can't, you cannot make that claim. It's too close to the actual Event, you can't make up something from 1976 and be called, not be called on it. Which is why Matthew could not have made this up. Right? He couldn't have made up the story and then passed it through all of Israel. Too many people would have been alive to discredit the account if something didn't happen. Especially something as incredible as this, far more incredible than an undefeated season for a basketball team. But what's interesting is you don't have century, or sources from the first century rising up saying Jesus never did any miracles. That's a lie. It's a, it's a false claim. In fact, what you have is non-Christian sources pointing that Jesus was some kind of miracle worker. A man named Pilate even wrote that Jesus was a miracle worker in Galilee. In fact, instead of Matthew's account being discredited, what actually happened was it was copied thousands of times and spread through all of the world, and is one of the most read documents of all time, is actually the most read document of all time. Then what explains that? That Matthew made this up? This is a legend that it didn't really happen? Two, I would say, don't discredit eyewitness account. Interestingly, the next story in Matthew's gospel is the story of Matthew's own conversion to following Jesus. That right after Jesus claims to be God, right after he claims to have the authority to forgive sins, and he heals a paralyzed man, Matthew tells you why he became a Christian. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence. The Matthew was an enormously wealthy and powerful man, but he also had a job that was inherently shady and, and was, was not looked upon with great, um, great uh, love um, in, in that culture. And so he had found someone in Jesus that, that both forgave him for the sins that he committed and also gave him a reason to give up all his wealth and power. Why? Well, if you want the answer to that question, come back next week. That's when we're going to tell this story. But I'll give you one answer now as to why Jesus, or Matthew gave up all of that to follow Jesus. Because Matthew saw a paralyzed man get up and walk out. Third, and this is where I'll, I'll leave the intellectual reasons behind, and just, just speak to your heart. Don't you want to believe there's a world where paralyzed people walk? 
I love music, and, and one of my favorite things in music is, is NPR's Tiny Little Desk Concert. Um, if you don't know what this is, what it does is NPR makes, gets the best musicians in the world and has them play a concert at an office desk. It's fascinating. And so one of the things they, they've done the last couple years is actually held a contest where people submit their, their, their music through YouTube, and then they pick a winner, and the winner gets to play a Tiny Desk Concert. Well, the winner this past year was Galen Lee, a fiddle player, player a songwriter, and a singer who has brittle bone disease. And watching her concert, listening to her music, was deeply moving. She, she, she makes incredible music. And watching her, watching her concert, I, I kept asking myself one question. That what kind of music would she make if she was completely physically restored? Don't you want to find out? Don't you want to say to, to those who can't walk, someday you will. Don't you want to say to those who are, are sick, you are going to be healed. Do you don't, don't you want to say to those grieving a loss, you will see them again. Christianity says all of those things are true in Jesus. Because when Jesus heals this, this man, it's not a magic trick. He's not just performing it. What he's doing is he's saying, so that you know that I'm God, so that you know I can make this claim, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to physically put this man back together. That at the heart of who Jesus was as Messiah is a physical restorer of this broken creation. And this healing shows the center of everything Jesus offers us. What the center of Christianity is, which is a resurrection. Right? The center of Christianity, it's not a list of rules. It's not a sermon. It's not a list of demands you have to meet for God to love you. It is a resurrection. That God hates death. That he hates the fact that you and I, our lives are unraveling and unspiraling towards a death. And that's why Jesus went around throughout his entire life giving paralytics new legs, giving the deaf new ears, giving the blind new eyes. That's why every funeral Jesus went to, he ruined. Because he brought the course back to life. That's the world Jesus offers us. And isn't that the world you long for? And if we have this desire, have you ever asked why? Because we shouldn't, right? Evolution should certainly not suggest that paralytics will walk one day. But look at our world, all that's unraveling. Science even tells us that the world is unraveling into unexistence. That someday it's just going to all uh, unspiral and we won't exist anymore. But none of us live like that's true, do we? It's not why you work so hard to love your kids even when they scream at you to, to, to do your work as well as you can, even when things around you unspiral against you. It's why you want to make a lasting contribution to this world that will last beyond your death. And I would just ask, if we have all of these desires, why? C.S. Lewis says, if you have a desire, it's because there's something to meet it. All right, last night I heard my, my five-month-old wake up many times crying, screaming, because he knows there's food, <laughs> A duck knows there's water to swim. And we want to say that there is death beyond, or there's life beyond death, that a paralyzed man will walk, that the blind will see, the deaf will hear. We have those desires because there is resurrection. There is resurrection life, and that's what Jesus offers this man and us in this story. What Jesus offers us is a life where no matter what unravels around you, he can put it back together. Right? Whether it's, it's something now that you're, you're facing that you're not sure of, or even when the day comes that death is going to, to, to get you and it's going to unravel to that point, even then Jesus gives us a hope beyond this grave because his life is a resurrection life. 
That even when what unravels for us is death itself, what Jesus would say to us is, go ahead, grieve your loss, go into your tomb. He can fix that too. Because on Easter, we proclaim an empty tomb. And if that tomb is empty, then there's nothing Jesus cannot put back together that, that has unraveled in your life. Nothing. It's what he offers us, is resurrection life. And do you believe that? Do you have that hope? Is that your daily experience? That no matter what falls apart around you, you know Jesus is going to come and make all things new. So that's what Jesus offers us because he claims to be God. So how do we get it? And all this text is it shows two things that you have to do right up front. If you want Jesus, you want his resurrection life, there's two things you have to do. One, you have to be willing to tear open a roof to get it. And two, you have to come with friends. Right? You have to be willing to tear open a roof. These men, or this man and his friends, are willing to open someone's roof to get to Jesus. Right? It's just incredible to think about. They give up their pride, all possibility of being seen as decent, respectable people. Right? What they're doing is embarrassing themselves. But it doesn't matter. You have to do whatever you have to do to get near to Jesus. Now, have you done that? Pursue Jesus with a single-minded focus, unconditionally, where nothing is off limits to him. But whatever you have to do to get near to him, you'll do, even if it's tear open a roof. That's one, but two, you have to come with friends, right? That Jesus is clear in, in his response to the man and his friends in Matthew 9 that he doesn't just say, I've seen your faith, paralyzed man, and, and I'll heal you. No, he said he saw their faith. Right? He saw the faith of their friends, which means if, if this man had not had friends bring him to Jesus, he would never have known Jesus saving touch. And so you can't come to Jesus alone. You have to come with friends. And, and so I would just ask, how does the church fit in to your faith life, to your life in general? Who are you following Jesus with? Because the only way you'll know resurrection life that can, that can raise and, and put back to your, your life back together the only way you'll have that is if you do it together with others, with a community around you, with a church. But you can tear open a roof. You can come with friends. It's still not enough to get the life Jesus offers you. It's why Jesus starts where he starts. That when Jesus asked the question, what, what's harder to do? Is it harder to say, I forgive you, or to say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk? We think we know what the right answer is. It's, it's, it's harder to say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk, but we're wrong. It's far harder for Jesus to, to look this man in the face and say, your sins are forgiven. But do you know why? At the movie Steve Jobs that came out not too long ago, the second one, it feels like there's going to be movies about Steve Jobs all the time coming out now, but the last one that came out, um, there's a scene where his daughter is angry at, at Steve for, for basically having been a terrible father. She's rightfully angry at him. She's going off on him. And, and there's this powerful moment where she sort of tells him off and runs away, and he chases after her. Runs her down, and you can tell this is sort of his apology confession moment. And what he says is his confession is, is fascinating. His apology to his daughter was he said this. He said, I'm poorly made. Which is brilliant writing, given Job's endless obsession to make things perfect, right? Make uh, computers or whatever it is he's making perfect. But me, he says, like a clunky virus-ridden PC, I'm poorly made. And I found that moment so interesting because he gets one thing wrong and one thing right. And what he gets wrong is he doesn't really take responsibility for, for the fact he's really, he's really caused a great deal of pain in his daughter's life. Right? To say I'm poorly made almost says, well, it's whoever made me, it's their fault. And that, that's not much of a confession. But what he gets right is that he knows he has to be remade. 
that his flaw is fatal and that he's going to keep hurting and destroying those he loves unless he is made in a way to be the sort of person who won't do that, who won't hurt those around him. Are you starting to see why it's going to be harder for Jesus to look at this man and say, I forgive you, than to say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk? That the man, he came for new legs. But Jesus wants to make all of him new. It's as if when Jesus says in that moment, I forgive you, what he's saying is, listen, you came for new legs. You came to walk, but I'm going to do more than that. I have far more to offer you than that, than new legs. Because even if the man had gotten new legs and, and walked out of there, he still would have died. At some point, he still would have been paralyzed again at his death, and he never would have walked again. And that's the reality. If you want to receive Jesus' resurrection life, you have to come recognizing you're dying. Right? That everything around you, it's unraveling. Your, your world is falling apart to a place. You are not going to put it back together. And even if you don't agree with that, just from a, you think you're in control of your life. Listen, look, you are going to die. We, all of us, right? We are unraveling to the same conclusion. And when Jesus starts with this man, when he says, I forgive you, what he says is, I'm going to give you far more than you hope for. And I have to forgive you first. I have to remake you first. And it's far harder for Jesus to forgive us than just to help us with the, the small problems we have day to day, or even the big problems we have. It's going to be far harder for Jesus to make us new, to forgive us, to make us into a new creation. The hardest thing Jesus would ever have to do is forgive you and me. Because if you ever had to say, I, I forgive you, I mean really say, I forgive you. I've, I've sat across from a family who was wrestling with whether or not to forgive a doctor who had missed a diagnosis and their father had died because of it. I've sat across from people wrestling with, do they, do they forgive the, the family member who had abused them? And the reality is you cannot look at that person and say, just forgive, it's not going to cost you anything, it's going to be easy. No, that you cannot forgive without some kind of death. Right, like if you don't forgive, right, the bitterness, the anger, it grows in you, you die little by little, day by day. Your death grows in you. Or if you do forgive, it feels like something died. Right? The true forgiveness, it requires a death always. And the question for us then begins, well, what has to die for us to be forgiven? What has to die for Jesus to look this man in the face and say, I forgive you? Because that's one reason the crowd is right to be angry with Jesus. There is not forgiveness without a sacrifice. There can't be. But Jesus knows in this moment when he says to this man, I forgive you, there is going to be a sacrifice. The answer to the question, what has to die for God to forgive you? It's Jesus. Jesus insists it's him. And maybe, maybe you think that's overkill, right? It's too much, right? Like a man dying to forgive me. Like, have I really done things that bad? But this is, listen, the one who offers you resurrection life, Jesus, the one who says, I am God and I've overcome the grave on your behalf, what he is saying to you, to me, is that you're so flawed, you're so broken, he has to die for you. Right? That, that, that is how you're going to be forgiven. That's the sacrifice required for you to taste his forgiveness. And that's why it's going to be far harder for Jesus to say to this man, I forgive you. Right? He can forgive this man's paralysis with a word. But he can only forgive this man's sin with his death. And Jesus, ultimately, he's not interested in this man rising from his mat and walking, but from this man, for this man to rise from his tomb and walk into a world where there is no paralysis, there is no death, and there is no sorrow. 
And the only way Jesus is going to do that, the only way that this man could know that life is if Jesus himself laid down and was nailed to a cross on his behalf. And Jesus did, listen, he did all of that for you and for me to forgive us and to ruin our funerals, right? That's Easter's great promise, that the, to, that the church now exists to be agents of this resurrection life, that Jesus has broken open his tomb and br- brought new life and new creation into our world. And we, church, we are the church exist to announce that news to this world. And so I'd ask all of us this morning, have you torn open a roof to get to that? Have you done everything you can to know that life that Jesus offers you? And if not, why not? Because Jesus, he's done far more than tear open a roof to get to you, right? He's torn open heaven itself. He was willing to be laid into a tomb and then tear open the stone to come out and to rise to new life, to get nearer to you. How could we not pursue him in return? Because he can put your life back together. He can stop the unraveling. He can stop your death. Whatever it is you need help, help for, he has far more to offer you. So like this man, come. Come, and be, come to Jesus' feet. Come vulnerable, exposed, knowing you're dying. Let him forgive you. And then take up your bed and go home. Let's pray.